The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.theweightcreativeco.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company. Blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Yeah, you kind of have to make some assumptions on windy days. Um, there are some keys. On windy days, you have to assume the fish have more cover, so therefore they're higher in the water column. That makes sense. Okay, that's that's that is just basic fish behavior. You know, that's the more shelter, the more cover they have, the more secure they feel, the more they're willing to roam and come higher in the water column to feed. You also have to remember when we're dealing with chironomids or mayfly larvae or cows fly larvae, the emergence stage is the most vulnerable. Hmm. Of you know, yeah. Makes sense. for the fish. So it really turns on fish. So again, when they're starting to feed, I, I probably fish 80% of my time mid to high in the water column, hmm. whether it's chronomids or mayflies or caddis or you name it. Even my lure fishing, it's mid depth to high in the water column. But also remember, my water is different than your water. You guys over in British Columbia, a lot of your lakes are stocked. There are early meso to late mesotrophic lakes are fairly deep, fairly clear. Yeah. I don't have kind of trout lakes in Alberta or in Saskatchewan or in Manitoba. There are very few of them. So all my lakes are eutrophic and hyper eutrophic. So they're very old lakes. Yeah. They're very shallow, 30 feet or less. You know, my average chronomid bed here is in five to eight feet of water. Huh. How are you, what type of line are you using to fish those normally? Well, it depends on the approach I need to use. Um, so I would use what's called a, a, a descent line tactic right. uh, that the British have coined. And it's been around over there forever. No one's ever heard of it here. But really all it is is a, off a floating line, um, a long leader. So because of my depth here generally being five to eight feet on a lot of my fishable areas, feeding areas, I can get away with a 13 to 20 foot leader easily and run three flies on it. Hmm. I'll have a heavier fly on the point position at the end of the leader, yep. which might be a 2x heavy hook gauge. I'll use that for weight because even though I want that to sink faster, I don't want to sink so fast out of the potential taking zone that the fish don't have time to react to it. Hmm. They need some time. Right? Then my middle fly will be a 1X or maybe even a 2X. Then my top fly will be a 1X or a standard wire. So everything sinks in kind of an arch. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's right? smart. So now I'm fishing three different levels at the same time. Yeah. With the same line. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes total, total sense, yeah. And the fish will decide, you know, the fish tell me if they take the middle fly, well, I know they're higher in the water.
water column. If they take the top fly, I know they're in the top three feet. And if they're taking the point fly, the bottom fly, then I know they're deeper, right? So I can adjust from there. So once I've established that feeding depth, I can adjust from there by taking my top fly and putting, you know, let's say they're deeper, I'll run a 2x on the top fly. 2x strong hook, a 2x strong hook in the middle, plus the 2x strong, and maybe now I'll put a tungsten bead on. Yeah. On the bottom fly to get the whole thing down, and it'll run straighter. You know, the yeah. the leader will run less, straight. Less I hard. Yeah, 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 for sure. Right. So well, that's that's one method. Um, <laughs> if they're consistently in the top three to four feet, five feet of water, I run what's called a washing line technique, and it's. Yeah. Probably the best chronometer fishing technique I, 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 I use, you know, bar nine. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on The Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hopley, and I'm super glad you chose to join us this time around as we seek out more passionate people in the fly fishing space. And we're going to, we got one on the line today out of Edmonton, Alberta, Gary Hankey. Now, Gary used to be uh, with uh, Team Canada Fly Fishing, uh, was captain, in fact, uh, when the team went to Bosnia in 2015, has been doing this, that is fly fishing, fly tying for many years, well over 50, accomplished fly tire, a master fly tire, in fact, uh, former guide, still teaches a lot of fly fishing, fly tying, has Fly Life Canada. We're going to do a deep dive in on this one. Gary, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're you're welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, it, I always like to start at the beginning, um, and I know you got to hit the rewind button a little bit here, but let's take it back to your roots, Gary. Like, I know fishing has been a huge part of your life basically from day one, but Tell us specifically how you came to discover fly fishing was such a big passion driving force in your life. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Well, I started as a very young boy, of course. Um, we used to do a lot of subsistence fishing in the family. So there was four boys in my family. And then my cousins had nine kids in their family, just lived a couple of houses down from us. So either my grandfather took us all out or my father or my uncle. And um, so we did a lot of spin fishing at first, and I was always intrigued with anything in water. Uh, the, the medium of water has always been just a fascination to me. So if it swam and it crawled in it, you, you could be in it. You know, mm-hmm. I just wanted to be in water. Uh, you know, I had aquariums. Uh, you know, anything associated with water. I swam, whatever. But the fishing end of it. Uh, so yeah, we did a lot of spin fishing um, methods that we today would call drop shotting. And of course, at that time, it was just a lead shot on the end of the spinning line with a tag, and a, and we often ran flies on there, you know, Royal Coachmans and Coachman patterns and. Paramichi bells and you name it for wet flies, the old traditional British style wet flies, and put a maggot on it, and you would catch trout and grayling and whitefish. So there was, you know, hundreds of fish in a day. Uh, 
one day I was on a river called the Windfall River up by White Court, which was pretty famous grayling stream back in the, those days, back in the 60s. And I ran into two fellows um, that were fly fishing and they were catching bull trout, which we seldom ever caught with the methods that we were using. And that really intrigued me. So I spoke with my grandfather about it and started looking into it. Next thing I know, I have a spin fly rod combination sitting on the table for my birthday. And it was mm-hmm. the old Eagle Claw, and I still have it today. That's cool. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was just up at the cabin on the weekend, and I'm looking at that old tube with the Eagle Claw in it and had to pull it out. And yeah, bring brought back a lot of good memories. Mm. So that was sort of my introduction into it. It was really by accident and then then of course you know being a bit competitive and sports minded and so were my cousins the competition within our little circle was spin versus fly so i often broke out that old eagle claw and turned it into a fly rod with the old fluger reel and old floating fly line and whatever we could <laughs> gather for, for leaders which was usually just straight you know, 10 pound or eight pound test, um, yeah. right off the spinning rod that became the leader and started drop shotting with that. And today it's sort of a kind of a spin from today, what we would call your, you know, an advanced form of your, your own nymphing. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. but it was very similar in a lot of ways and it, it just caught fish. So that just kept, kept my interest going. And then, We'd go onto lakes and, you know, troll around, spinning rods and fly rods and just have fun, you know. Yeah, that, that's kind of a familiar story. I think a lot of people I know came to fly fishing through spinning, and I know a lot of us still do it, and I know you're you're probably one of those guys that, um, for me, it's fishing, right? Like whether you're ice fishing or you're spin casting or you're drifting with floats or you're you're out in the ocean, you're out in the salt, it's all fishing, right? I mean, it's, it's just depends on how we choose to do it but there's no right or wrong yeah exactly and it's you know there's no right or wrong it is all fishing um each genre if you want um has carryover into the other genres and i think mechanically when you're spin fishing and then you bring that go into bait fishing or you go into down rigging or you go into side planning or whatever have you all the different mechanics that you learn from each area of fishing or each genre of fishing can be adaptable into, let's just say, fly fishing. Well, here, here's a point, case in point, Gary. Uh, so last weekend I was ice fishing, and I, I go a few times a year. I prefer to tie flies, but you know what? It's something to do. And I, I was fishing with a buddy that I hadn't seen in years and he schooled me and showed me some things. That I'm like, man, I never even thought of that. Um, mm. we we're just jigging simply for kokanee, but man, did it ever turn out to be productive. And this guy was so dialed in. There's something we can take. Like I look at, I look at some of these guys that are fishing some of these amazing minnow patterns. And you can't tell me that we didn't get those ideas from big, you know, rapalas and some of those multi-jointed minnows right oh yeah you know it's all adaptable right i mean you know i I tie a lot of northern pike flies and 
So when I was asked to do that, you know, I, I started fly fishing Northern Pike in 1969 when we used to go to the lake called Baptiste Lake, which my father later bought a cabin at or bought a lot at and cleared the lot and built a cabin. That's the cabin I was talking about. So I've been fishing that lake for a long time. And I started, I remember one time going out there with the family and forgetting my spinning rod because the weekend before we were out fly fishing, fishing out at the Windfall River for Grayland. Next thing I know, my cousins are all catching fish, pike and walleye, and I've just got a fly rod. Well, guess what? By the end of that weekend, I, you know, I pulled out some of the biggest flies I had. Fortunately, I had a lot of white streamers at the time, and here I am catching pike and walleye just as easily as they're catching pike and walleye on jigs and spoons. Mm. So and, everything's adaptable. Everything's yeah. interchangeable in Again, it's you know it's chasing the technique as opposed to chasing a specific recipe, as you would let's say in fly time. You know, chasing yep. a recipe versus chasing a tying technique or a procedure that's adaptable from one hook to the next. Well, would you agree? I mean, you've been doing this a long time, but would you agree that that knowledge is kind of cumulative? I mean, based on all the different genres. Yeah, it is. Um, it's kind of funny you say that because I was just thinking about that sort of this morning um the best fly the best anglers let's not say fly anglers let's say call them anglers the best anglers i know have what i call a sixth sense in fishing they just know where fish are they just know how the behave they just know where to look for them even on bodies of water they've never been been to right and when i look into their backgrounds they all come from a very diverse fishing background of they do it all they spin fish they bait fish uh they down rig they river fish they lake fish and i think all those put together cumulatively give you a different sense on the water mm-hmm. of where to start yeah amen i agree 100 percent. so so let's let's throw it back to the fly fishing world so i'm really curious kind of who who inspired you because you've influenced a lot of people taught a lot of people um, mm. you know, when it comes to tying patterns, just fly fishing in general, reading water, but who would you cite as influences in, in your world? Well, I'm going to divide my life in half then because it sort of took a turn, uh, about 12, 15 years ago. So at the beginning, um, George Leonard Herter was probably my biggest influence and he wrote, you know, books back in the 1930s um, post-world war ii and uh, so he had a book called professional fly tying and lure making and that was probably the the book i learned out of when i was chasing recipes and learning he had a little bit on techniques and i followed that and quickly found that it was important to learn techniques more than it was to learn recipes uh, from there, then, of course, we had what was called the golden era, uh, according to Hans Van Klink, and that was the mid-70s to mid-90s, where the guys that influenced me the most were guys like Lefty Cray, Dave Whitlock, um, Charles Brooks. I got to meet all of them, uh, which was a big thrill f- for me at the time, and I became very much a follower of all of them. And again, I was still stream fishing and lake fishing, you know, I I did it all. And then just 
in 19 or 2012, 2011, a friend of mine came to me and said, Hey, there's this fly fishing competition coming to Calgary and it's called the Canadian nationals. Do you, are you interested in going? And I said, sure. So I started getting acquainted there with some of the com- competitors to be, and they sent me on a road of, if you're going to come out and do this, you need to learn how to do this. You need to learn how to do that. And I'm going, I've never heard of this stuff. And they said, well, you need to go to Europe and talk to people over there. Here I am, 50-something, competing in my first Canadian Nationals. So I, I you know, I started competing late in life. And all of a sudden, I ran into guys like Charles Jardine, Hans Van Klinken, which I hosted at one of the fly shows in Calgary. Him and I became really good friends, and he he really opened my eyes. And, and then I, you know, got to know of um, guys like Lubos Russo out of Czechoslovakia, who was you know, five-time world youth championship. I'm going, okay, something's going on here. How can you win five world championships? You know, and then I meet David Arcade from Spain. And, you know, he's been on the podium mm-hmm. seven times. You know, I'm going, like, how do you do that? How do you how do you consistently do that? Like, what's your secrets? And then I, you know, look at the lake anglers. And I, you know, and I start following all these guys out of Europe. And the internet really made it a small world if I use the internet more effectively. So if I do a Google search, as an example, let's, say, let's type in minnows. And I do search, and it automatically defaults to .com, right? Because we live in North America, so I would get all the North American opinions on minnows or chronomids or caddis or whatever. Uh, but if I did the same search and I put .eu or .uk behind it, then that would default me into Great Britain or default mm. me into Europe. And that completely changed my world. I had a whole new resource available to me. That's a good tip. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. You run across opinions. And what I like about those kind of searches, everything's timelined, right? And you can start putting history together and start looking at, you know, oh, geez, I mean, they've been doing this for 200 years longer than we've been a nation. It's no wonder that, you know, they're the best Cronwood anglers in the world there in the UK, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, honestly, that's one thing I, I am by no means a, competitive fly fisher or would I ever want to be just for me I mean I'm competitive with you know the guys that we go out with but I always think that if we can learn from those people that do it the best so you know aka comp anglers from all over the planet who are spending a lifetime studying trout studying what they eat studying you know techniques how can we not up our game right it's just a no-brainer isn't that what it's about be to become better um, yeah. And yeah. find, you know, if you're in a classroom with the same teacher over and over and over, that's fine. You're going to learn. But what if you change the teachers up and, and had a different perspective teaching the same class? Yeah. yeah. Would you have a different opinion? Would you get different points of view? And that's really what it's about. You know, your, your teachers need to be different people from different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. Competition definitely isn't for everyone, and nor should it be. Um, competition in itself 
you know, it's just like any other sport. You know, I mean, I have a driver's license. doesn't make me Mario Andretti, but I, you know, but I still like going. <laughs> right? And NASCAR brings to us new rubber technology, new oil technologies, new motor technologies. So yeah. that's the training and driving force behind a lot of new creative things that come into the fly fishing world. Yeah. I, I look at all the materials and I look at all the patterns and I, this, this came up on the show a while back. Cause I'll, I'll tell you a quick little story, Gary. I was in, in the UK just after my wife and I got married in the early nineties. And, uh, I, I picked up a, uh, a fly book, a, f- a fly pattern book by Bob church and it was called like Bob church's guide to new fly patterns or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that book changed my world. And I'll tell you, I wish I would have paid attention to it in, in 1992 and tied some of those patterns because those patterns now are what we're using in 2023 and like boobies and blobs, yeah. things I'd never heard of, yeah. never used. And it's just like, yeah. I, I, I'm still mad about that. I know that sounds funny, yeah. but. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because, you know, all of a sudden boobies and blobs are new here, you know, but they've been around forever. I mean, they've been around 60 plus years, right? I remember watched, reading an article in the 80s about this fly called the Dolly Parton. And it was only part of the story. And it was written by an, an American author. Um, but it was a booby fly, right? I thought so, you were going to say the Dolly Lama. Okay, so we're talking. No, but Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. All right. Hmm. You know. Sorry, Dolly, but you know, there's there's a fly named after you, you know. But but it never really took off because I, I remember getting into many discussions with some pretty influential people in the industry that said, "Well, British flies don't work here." And I'm going, "Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> That's news to me." Um, I still I, I, find it fascinating, still to this day, Gary, that a lot of those UK guys come over especially on stocked, you know, fishing the stockies on some of the stock ponds and, and lakes in British Columbia and beyond and just slay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how can you do that? How can you go to another country where you've never fished before, spend three days pre-fishing and then go out and finish in the top 10 in the competition out of 160 people, right? And then do it continuously or, you know, do it frequently. There's got to be something to it right yeah for sure certainly not luck so let's dig into i want to get to know your day-to-day a little bit a a little bit gary before we get into uh you know your business in fly life canada and some of the things you've been up to you ready for a few different questions sure i kind of like to get the lifestyle thing figured out so when you're on your way to the bow or you're on your way to your favorite still water what's playing in the truck on the stereo on the way there Probably a talk show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, what do you like? Um, I, I often listen to six thirty Chad because it's here. Yep. But you know, whatever whatever the current affairs are, municipal or provincial affairs are, I kind of kind of like that. Um, Interesting. L- let's talk patterns, man. So when you're on, you know, your favorite, say, Stillwater, what's a go-to fly pattern for you? Like, and I know that's a huge question, but is there yeah. something you reach for more often? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, definitely a huge question. 
I, I guess in general, uh, like a, a very quick searching pattern when I get to any lake, regardless of where it is, it would be some kind of a lure or what we call a streamer, right? Um, I would prefer the word lure because it's often very brightly colored. Um, it's highly visible from greater distances and I use it, it pushes a lot of water. So I use a lure type pattern to attract fish and I find fish, trout in particular, um, are a lot like cats. Uh, if you take a string string ball and play with it in front of them, they'll pounce all over it. It's not a mouse, so why did they jump all over it? You know, so you're playing with different triggers to get a response. Oh, I like that. That's quotable. Um, are you fishing a lot for brown trout? I fish, well, so one of my home waters, um, there's rainbow trout, which it was a rainbow trout lake for over 40 years. And then in the last few years, they put tigers and browns into it. Um, I prefer to fish the tigers and browns, especially. Um, more so because they're a bit more challenging. They're more of a vertical feeder than they are a horizontal feeder. So your tactics have, have to be slightly different uh, than if you were fishing for stocky rainbows or, or rainbows, even naturalized rainbows. Um, mm -hmm. I was just curious because when you say lures and streamer patterns, a lot of times, I don't know why, my brain just kind of goes to char, right? It goes to brookies, it goes to browns, it goes to tigers. <laughs> but let's talk about your favorite place to talk fly fishing. So, you know, this time of year when there's a lot of hard water, um, where do you get your fix? Like, where do you get your fill on fishing when you're not out there? Um, good question. That, like, I guess really it's on, on Facebook, on, on the internet. I mean, I have in Canada, one of the largest fly fishing Facebook pages. Um, that's also fairly global, even though it's called Alberta fly fishing. I have a lot of friends through competition that have joined the page so i get a pretty broad global content on our page so it is there's always something to talk about always something new or different coming up and it's diverse and i like that mm -hmm. so you know and then i helped a, you've met a friend of mine by the name of rick pasek yeah uh, he started he wants to start a Stillwaters lake fishing page because that's sort of his forte. And I said, okay, well, if you want me to help, I'll help you out. Um, more than willing to do so. So he started a Facebook page called Stillwater Global. Um, again, a lot of international content um, and domestic national content. So both of them are very diverse uh, in the sense that we get a lot of input from all parts of the world it's not just one perspective yeah no for sure i think that's valuable and i i i, I you were just talking about those google searches and that's that's going to change the way because i'm always looking for new patterns always just kind of seeing what's out there but yeah. you're you're right i do focus it's dot coms almost 99 percent of the time so that's yeah a, that was a little trick i learned a while back and uh... You know, it's little things like that that can make a huge difference in your own development, right? Yeah, no, for sure. 
no, I know you were a sports guy because you and I were talking just kind of before we jumped on this this call. Um, you played some football back in the day, defensive end. But if mm-hmm. if you had to pick, if you're cheering for your team, what does that look for? Uh, you know, being in Edmonton, I assume it's probably Eskimos or, or sorry, <laughs> Elk or yep. uh, um, Oilers. But you tell me, what who do you, who are you pulling for? I definitely pull for the for the Eskimos for sure. Um, always have uh, NFL would be Green Bay probably because you know my childhood. Hey, Dad, they have the same colors as the Edmonton. <laughs> right, so that was natural. Yeah, hockey. I probably should follow the Oilers a lot more than I do. I have been a little bit this year, but not that much. Um, I'd rather watch a good soccer game. You know, um, who's your team in soccer? Oh, Munich, of course. Ah, okay. So you're talking, uh, <laughs> all right. So international soccer, yeah, yeah, for sure. If you had to kind of distill down why you do all this, like your whole life, I mean, basically, fly fishing revolves around it, right? It's a central theme in everything you're kind of doing, it seems, um, whether it's, uh, you know, even having that aquarium or it's all water centered. What do you get out of all this? What does it bring into Gary Hankey's world? What does fly fishing do for you? Well, it, gra- it grounds me, if anything. Um, it's the place I go hide. Um, it, it, it became my addiction. You know, other people choose to use other things to hide in. I chose fly fishing and fly time, um, which I think was a lot better and a lot more healthier for me than. You know, some of the alternatives, I guess. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so if if you kind of looked at your your time between fishing and tying, I mean, I, I know tying is a huge part of your life. Is it a fifty fifty kind of thing for you, or? Well, yeah, it's a kind of a relaxing thing. I mean, it, it, you know, a lot of people say there's no such thing as a fly tying season, but then they probably don't live in Canada. Um, yeah, I feel that. You know, I mean, I've had discussions with people out of England tell me point blank, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going, yeah, okay, sure. Um, but, you know, when you have seven months of winter, like where I live, um, and you don't do a ton of ice fishing anymore, then, yeah, it's it's fly time. It's developing the skills. I, again, it's just where I go hide, you know, just to get sort of get away from the world a little bit. Mm-hmm. Even even this morning, I, I tied about 20 flies this morning. Just because. What were you What were you tying up? What kind of patterns? Um, I was tying a a lure pattern called a cat whisker. So it's a white marabou tail, chartreuse body, and then an orange bead head. You know what's um, funny is I was just checking that fly out on on one of your YouTube um channels. Yeah. I catch an absolute ton of fish on that. Well, it's, it's funny that that was the only one I looked at. It just caught my eye. There was a whole bunch of patterns popped up, and I'm like, what is that? Yeah, well, and, and that's just it. Like, if you think it caught your eye, you should see how trout react to it. It catches their eye too. Yeah, no, that's a good looking pattern. It's what is it like a marabou tail with a, a chartreuse body? Yeah, red yeah. red bead. Yeah, and then you can, you know, it's, it, that color combination is highly visible. So, um, yeah, so depending on the water conditions you're in, like I said, I I would use that as a searching pattern. And because of where I live in Canada, I can use two or more flies on a cast. Mm-hmm. I know you guys in BC are limited to one hook to the one hook rule, which is unfortunate because it, it it's it's limiting to yeah. your grip. And um, but 
you know, all the other jurisdictions in Canada are two to four flies. And when you learn how to cast a team of flies and how to put a team of flies together to be efficient, the cat whisker, that lure style pattern will either run on the point or on the end of the leader. So it does a couple of things. One, it's highly visible. So the visual influence it has from greater distance because of the fluorescent colors or the color combinations under certain water clarity, arouses that curiosity from fish that are further away and brings them into my cast and then they can make their choice of which three flies they want but i've attracted them from further away the other thing it does is it pushes water so it makes a lot of harmonic noise so they can feel that almost from across the lake you know i mean the lateral sensitivity of fish is extraordinary and that kind of stuff, again, plays with their curiosity to come and look at what's going on. Mm. So the whole thing is set up to arouse curiosity. Or, you know, and all trout are visual hunters at some point, but they got to see it or see it or feel it from further distances to find it and then see it and then drill down on it, right? Yeah. So we use all those principles in a single leader with multiple flies to appease different needs of visual, of harmonics, you know, sound, lateral line hearing, um, and, and, and leader and fly control by weighting or non-weighting of the flies in conjunction with floating or intermediate or slow sinking or fast sinking lines, right? Mm. To, yeah. Yeah. So we do a whole bunch of things at one time. Yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty darn effective for sure. Are you, um, like other than, you know, running Fly Life Canada, um, and, and your tying and your teaching, like, do you have a day job aside from that or are you retired from that? No, I was in the oil patch uh, for 40 plus years and, uh, very, became very specialized in what was called underbalanced drilling. What, what exactly uh, is that? Well, it's uh, drilling a well yeah. uh, into a reservoir and using the reservoir fluids to lubricate and lift the cuttings out of the well. So if it, the well is producing oil or producing gas, we're using that as the drilling medium. So it's very volatile. It's very specialized. Uh, it takes a crew or a team of people uh, that are very good at their jobs. Uh, a lot of engineers involved. Yeah, a lot of PhDs, a lot of doctorates were involved in this new style of drilling because it was so volatile and everything had to be done right. Otherwise, you were killing people. You were lighting everything up on fire and, you know, often drilling in sour gas formations, you know, very volatile within themselves. So you had a real strong group of people involved in this stuff. a lot, of, like I said, a lot of PhDs, a lot of engineers. So that was sort of my world, a lot of sciences. But I was sort of the, the fit between the guy with the PhD in the engineering background and the guy on the rig and making it happen. So I took all the academia stuff and made it into reality. Hmm. Interesting. Were you with one of the big companies or a few big companies or... Yeah, I was with a few big companies. I was with uh, Williams Tool Company, which is a startup in Canada, uh, kind of specialized equipment. Uh, it's a product line called a rotating head. Yeah. Uh, I was with uh, Smith International, which was a developer yeah. of a lot of different drilling products. Um, oh. I was with Weatherford, again, a very specialized company. Hmm. Uh, 
again in their underbelt division. And yeah, I was finally pushed uh, into retirement at 61. So I made my money. So mm-hmm. now it's, 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 if it wasn't all fly fishing before it is now, but look back on your working career, Gary, what, what's the one job maybe you didn't love or did you ever do anything? You're like, man, I, I don't really want to do that again. Um, all of them are interesting because <laughs> right from the start, I mean, I, you know, I was working the foothills and exploratory drilling from Montana up to the Yukon. So I got to fish all this virgin country back in the seventies and eighties. Oh, wow. First road in there. Right. Um, I don't know if there's anything I say I wouldn't do again. There's probably more so things I'm less interested in. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. So, yeah. what? Tell me about Fly Life Canada. So, what do, what are you doing with with Fly Life Canada exactly? Um, it sounds like it's a, a retail online retail outlet for all things fins. Yeah. So when I was in Bosnia, um, I'm at the competition. They kind of have this opening and closing ceremony, and we all have to sort of stay in the same hotel. And outside the hotel, there was. Um, a little fly fair that was going on outside and local people would come in there uh, selling the stuff that they were making for the fly fishing industry. It's a big thing there, right? Um, competition or fly fishing in, in Bosnia is, you know, probably one of the, it's the second largest competitive sport. Um, it's very different in, as far as products are concerned than what we have here. There's similarities, of course, but there's a lot, a lot of different stuff. And then I was introduced to some people um, that carried products that I wasn't familiar with in, in North America. So when I got back, some of them asked me if I would represent their products in Canada. And I said, sure. So I started re- selling out to retailers. I originally had a wholesale company. And... I brought in tons of product and lots of people said, Oh, I want this. I want it. And, uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of them didn't pick it up after I brought it in. So that forced me into creating a retail outlet. Hmm. Um, so so yeah. if we, if we go on fly life, Canada, what are we going to find? Um, tying and mostly fly fishing things or. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's mostly fly tying stuff. Uh, a lot of synthetic products. Hmm. Um, name some of your brands, Gary, like what, what are you carrying? Well, I was I was carrying Zamperfly and Stonefoe and Hens and yeah. um, you know those were the three primaries, Renome Scissors and you know things like that. And uh-huh. yeah, you know the wife asked me the other day, well, you're 67 now, how much longer are you going to continue working? Well, as long as it's fun, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. You know, I'm, I I don't do it to make a living I've, I've made my living yeah no i get it i think that's a that is a common denominator in a lot of people in the fly fishing space it's rare very rare i talk to somebody that that's all they do you know like phil roley would be one of those guys but there's not a lot there's not a lot out there yeah, yeah. let's um let's dig into your your tying a little bit so i know that's such a big part of your life and i always love talking tying because that for me is um near and dear to my heart but what is there a certain vice that you like to tie on these days have you got a few of them like you were t- you said you're t- 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 tying this morning what what were you using 
I got quite a few. I mean, it's probably, you know, I got quite a few different vices. Kind of like, like my wife's uh, utensil cabinet in the kitchen, you know. Um, I got a different vice for different things. I mean, I started out with, you know, something pretty much that looked like a pair of vice grips you know, at one point. Um, and then I went into, you know, uh, Renzetti's and I went into uh Norvices and I went into Stone Foes and now I want to get a new speed vice out of Germany. Um hmm. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, it's um it's a Marinson M A M A I R. Okay. You know, from looking at it, it's probably the ultimate speed vice. So it's sort of a spin off from a Norvice, but it's mm-hmm. typical German engineering and German machining. It's exceptionally well made. Huh. Interesting. So, like, what were you tying on today? What was I spinning on today? Yeah. I spent on a Stonefold Transformer. Today. Oh, yeah. 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 That's an, oh, absolutely it is. Now, I know you said you're a Sem- Semperfy guy, but is that what you use for thread for the most part? Or what do you... Um... I, I, you know, I, I did like everyone else. I did the Danville and the UTC stuff, and then uh, Zamperfly came out, and you know, sort of the latest, greatest, and it definitely had its application, but it's got places it doesn't fit. And, you know, now I find myself going back to whatever is the best thread for the job. Yeah. You know? Amen. There's no one thread that does it all. You know? What do you like for tying midge, midge chronomid patterns? What's your go to thread? Uh,. <laughs> It's funny you should say that. Um, I'm in cahoots right now with a gentleman out of South Africa on a chronomid pattern. Uh-huh. It's going to be put up in his new book. I believe it's going to be chapter three. And it doesn't have any thread on it at all. Interesting. It's completely made a span flex. The pattern is called the floss boss. The whole thing from the initial laydown of the material to start the underbody, to the ribbing, to tying in the wing pads, to tying in uh, the flashback material. It's all done with flexi floss or span flex, which, you know, all this it all goes by a whole bunch of different names, right? But it's all pretty much the same stuff. Hmm. That sounds interesting. So, that's kind of my go-to pattern now. It actually started about four or five years ago as a tying um, demonstration for one of my fly tying classes because uh, one of the guys I had couldn't see very well. And all I had with me was, was some floss. And I started to show him how to do a catch to lay that in and then how to run touching turns and then do palmering turns and how to do layering turns. And he, when the when that was done, that exercise was done, he looked at me and he said, that's a chronomid. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> he said, well, all you used was thread. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> I said, interestingly, you can do that with anything that's long and stretchy, by the way. And so I grabbed some flexi floss. I did exactly the same pattern with flexi floss. So the first pattern we called an audible chronomid. <laughs> it was done with the thread, with the floss, yeah. because we counted the amount of turns to create the thorax, to create the body, to create the ribs, and then to create the layering turns. Hmm. So that he as a brand spanking new fly tire, an hour later could tie 
all his chronomids in a size 8, 10, 12, um, exactly the same. Because one of the things as fly tires we try to achieve when we're time flies is to have all of them look the same. Yeah, be consistent. Yeah, that's huge. Right? Consistency is huge. So yep. a lot of people laughed at it. Oh, Gary, you count threads. I'm going, yeah, but I'm teaching my students right. how to count threads for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So it, do you use a lot of tungsten beads? Uh, in my river fishing, I do. I don't in my lake fishing. No. Really? Now, no, I, I'm in my lake fishing. If I want an anchor fly on the point, I'll take some of my lures and put time on a jig hook with a tungsten bead. Right. Hmm. But I, I don't fish fast in a lake. Are you fishing but, with a drogue a lot? Almost always. I would say 95% of the time. So you don't mind a little wind? <laughs> I love wind. Yeah. yeah, that's... uh. And wind, a lot of people don't realize what wind does. Mark. It's, uh, it turns fish on. It brings them food. It cre- They're trout. It creates currents. Guess what current? Guess what trout do in currents? They go up current, up wind. Yeah, makes sense. And, well, and then all, all the food's blown to one kind of... Usually funnels into a few locations, right? Exactly, exactly. And therefore, you have to cover a lot of distance because, you know, if you were to just park an anchor all the time, you may or may not find that spot. But if you're on a drift, let's say you're drifting one or two miles of shoreline, yeah. you're going to find dead spots where there's no fish because there's no concentration of food. And then you're going to find all of a sudden an area, you know, 100 meters or whatever, 50 meters. You're just fish after fish after fish, and then you'll get drifted into a dead spot again. Well, in that area we had fish after fish after fish obviously a lot of food was blown in there yeah yeah now so with the drogue so once you get to that destination then you take your electric or whatever motor you got go back to the beginning and drift it again yeah 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 but but don't drive over your path of drift right oh is that right go outside of that and come way up and around and then you know that way you can keep your fish always fresh right? and you're casting ahead and retrieving mostly yeah i always cast downwind so i'm utilizing the yeah. wind to give me an extra 10 or 15 yards in my cast do you sell drogues on your site i don't i should be huh. um i was going to and i still might i'm uh, you know it depends on how popular it gets so right now i'm telling guys you know go to winchwood in in england to get them um they have a fairly regular inventory of them. Yeah, so. it's uh, it's an amazing way to fish. Only done it once uh, with somebody I'm sure you know, John Wilkinson. And mm-hmm. uh, man, it's a great fact, fact. Oh, amazing, amazing fisherman. Uh, but effective way to fish, and uh, it was a learning curve for me. And the thing that I liked about it, Gary, I'll be honest with you. The wind ruins everything I love to do, whether it means chasing a golf ball or throwing a fly. It's like the wind is usually not my friend. So it's like if I could find a way to make that work in your favor, then maybe that's, you know, I should be looking yeah. at that for sure. Hmm. Well, you get to a point, you do enough of that wind drifting or drogue fishing, you'll find that wind is your friend and the opposite will become true that no wind is not your friend. 
which is bizarre to me. And and granted, I know you you were doing a lot of competitive fishing, so a lot of my fishing is with indies, and we're fishing, you know, balanced leech patterns, and we're fishing chronomids mm-hmm. under an indicator, mayflies, whatever. And uh, so when I get a flat, calm day, I get excited. You know, you can kind of see what's going on. You see every rise, so the trout show themselves. But on a windy day, it's it's just a different ball game. It's like it's like apples and oranges. Yeah, you kind of have to make some assumptions on windy days. Um, there are some keys. On windy days, you have to assume the fish have more cover, so therefore they're higher in the water column. That makes sense. Okay. That's that's that is just basic fish behavior. You know, that's the more shelter, the more cover they have, the more secure they feel, the more they're willing to roam and come higher in the water column to feed. You also have to remember when we're dealing with chronomids or mayfly larvae or cows fly larva, the emergence stage is the most vulnerable. Hmm. Of you know, yeah. Makes sense. That's for the fish. So it really turns on fish. So again, they're starting to feed. I, I probably fish 80% of my time mid to high in the water column, hmm. whether it's chronomids or mayflies or caddis or you name it. Even my lure fishing, it's mid depth to high in the water column. But also remember, my water is different than your water. You guys over in British Columbia, a lot of your lakes are stocked. There are early meso to late mesotropic lakes are fairly deep, fairly clear. Yeah. I don't have kind of trout lakes in Alberta or in Saskatchewan or in Manitoba. There are very few of them. So all my lakes are eutrophic and hyper-eutrophic. So they're very old lakes. Yeah. They're very shallow, 30 feet or less. You know, my average chronomid bed here is in five to eight feet of water. Huh. How are you, what type of line are you using to fish those normally? Well, it depends on the approach I need to use. Um, so I would use what's called a, a, a descent line tactic right. uh, that the British have coined, and it's been around over there forever. No one's ever heard of it here. But really all it is is a, off a floating line, um, a long leader, so because of my depth here generally being five to eight feet on a lot of my fishable areas, feeding areas, I can get away with a 13 to 20 foot leader easily and run three flies on it. Hmm. I'll have a heavier fly on the point position at the end of the leader, yep. which might be a 2X heavy hook gauge. I'll use that for weight because even though I want that to sink faster, I don't want to sink so fast out of the potential taking zone that the fish don't have time to react to it. Hmm. They need some time. Right? Then my middle fly will be a 1X or maybe even a 2X. Then my top fly will be a 1X or a standard wire. So everything sinks in kind of an arch. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's smart. Right? So now I'm fishing three different levels at the same time. Yeah. With the same line. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes total, total sense, yeah. And the fish will decide, you know, the fish tell me if they take the middle fly, well, I know they're higher in the water column. If they take the top fly, I know they're in the top three feet. And if they're taking the point fly, the bottom fly, then I know they're deeper, right? So I can adjust from there. So once I've established that feeding depth, I can adjust from there by taking my top fly and putting, you know, let's say they're deeper, I'll run a 2X on the top fly, 2x strong hook a 2x strong hook in the middle plus the 2x strong and maybe now i'll put a tungsten bead on yeah 
on the bottom side to get the whole thing down and it'll run straighter you know the yeah. the, the leader will run less, straight less I have more. yeah 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 for sure right so uh, that's that's one method uh, if they're consistently in the top three to four feet five feet of water i run what's called a washing line technique and it's Yep. Probably the best tournament fishing technique I I, I, I use, you know, bar nine. Yeah, we had John uh, Horsey on talking about that, and I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, something I can't it, do, but makes a lot yeah, of sense. You can. Yeah. Why can't you do it? Let me ask you that question. Well, isn't that, you? I can only fish one fly. Yeah, so. Okay. So. So put your bobber on the end, run your fly five yeah. to six feet ahead of the bobber yeah or don't even use a bobber you use a six mil booby tube foam and create a little nylon loop and use that as your float because all you need is that back end of the leader to hang up yeah just some visual yeah yeah right yeah i've done this on jocko lake with a guy and and three four or five feet of water and just had a, a, a spectacular day when he was hanging below the bobber and he did pretty good yeah but he was near the fish that i did because he he had a had the fly one foot below the bobber, and every time he moved the bobber, it spooked the fish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right? what I worry about. Yeah, I've I've done the same thing on that same lake. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a great lake. I mean, it's relatively easy to fish. I mean, you know, when you look at it, and it's got perfect structure. There's fish everywhere. Almost every <laughs> lake I fish is like that, and I hate to say it. It probably drives you nuts, but. We've got some killer shoals, and it's like the fish are not, they're not hard to find. It's just finding early season, and you just got to get the depth, right? It's like, where are they? Are they, are they taking bloodworms off the bottom? Are they, are they taking the pupa as they're ascending? It's, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So back to remember what I said about using, you know, different genres to develop different techniques. Well, this is a spin fishing technique, really. Uh, so we just take the bobber, or I, I prefer to use a just a six mil or nine mil booby foam and find a color that the fish won't take, yeah. and then six feet ahead of that, run a dropper line with your single chronometer puke on there. It's amazing how well that works in British Columbia. Yeah, I'm gonna give that a whirl there, my friend. I'm on it. I like yep. it. So you can use a washing line, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I guess I wasn't looking at it that way. Yeah, yeah, fair, huh? Hey, how do you feel about painting us a picture of your perfect day? So if 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 it was early June tomorrow and you could have your dream day or if it was the fall and you can have your perfect paint us a little picture, Gary, because I'd be really curious to see what you'd paint here. Like tell us what type of water you're fishing, who are you hanging out with? Is there something cold to drink? I suppose if I could talk to you, uh, a picture, which would be fairly normal day of fishing. is I'm not an early bird riser. Uh, I should be, but I'm not. Um, I'll get up when I feel like it. I'll make breakfast. It's usually going to be bacon and eggs, or, you know, poached easy over, whatever. Drive 20 minutes out to my lake, launch my flat bottom boat. And just start slowly tootling around. Um, my my drink of choice is coffee over anything else. And then in the evening, it's scotch. And I'll spend, you know, six to seven hours on the lake. And it is what it is. If I catch, great. If I don't, 
that's fine as well. I'm just out there relaxing. Mm. A lot of times I'm experimenting. I'm actually, a lot of days I find myself trying things that won't work and then try to figure out how to make them work. Yeah, I get that. You got the drogue out? Oh, yeah, almost always. There's very, very, Alberta has an average wind speed of 13.65 kilometers per hour. (laughs) It'd be foolish not to own a drogue in Alberta. (laughs) That's funny that you know that number. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I have to write, I have to write a paper on it, right? (laughs) That's funny. 13, so what what is that? That's like over, that's like over 20 miles an hour, is it not? I don't know. I'm. 13 kilometers an hour. We got a lot of listeners in the States. They're going like, what are we talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's about eight miles an hour. Eight miles an hour? Yeah. I have no... Oh, yeah, sorry. I went the wrong... I went the wrong way. I went went the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And that's that's probably, like you say, that's a normal day. You get a blustery day and uh, all bets are off. Yeah, when it gets 20, 30, 40 kilometers an hour, I just love it. Like, everyone's heading to shore, and I'm just getting excited about going out, man. Like, I, one, I get the lake to myself because everyone's hiding in camp. Yeah. And two, the fish are just absolutely turned on. Well, you, you need to come out where I'm at, Gary, because I'll be coming home from a trophy lake after getting blown off it and like screw this the kite surfers are out on skaha and they're like going mach five and i'm just like yeah yeah this is not a fishing day for you it's probably right in your wheelhouse it's right in my wheelhouse i've had friends of mine do that and actually deliver me a bag lunch <laughs> uh, on a kite <laughs> you thought i skipped the dishes on it <laughs> on one of the boards of the sail right <laughs> that's funny yeah it's uh it's i guess it's all about perspective you, you got me rethinking this though, but I got to get a drogue and I got to figure out where to get one. I, th- I think I have a funny feeling that Evo might sell them at Smart Angling. Yeah, Evo does. I'm sure he does. I think yeah. he brings the Winchwood ones now or maybe somebody else's. But uh, Was he a teammate of yours? No, uh, no. We actually always competed against each other. So okay. when I was in it was Josh Jellinus, Dave Heine, Yonit. Um, and who's the other fellow's name out of Montreal now? Mm-hmm. It's funny how cyclical Rafan, it is. Rafan Cyprian. Oh, oh yeah, that's his business partner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Huh? Small. It's such a small world, right? And they, these names pop up, it and is. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. But I, I think what what surprises me constantly, Gary, in the competitive scene is how much people do actually share some information. I mean, I know patterns can be kind of odd, but when you're in the boat with somebody, you're probably learning something. Well, you are. I mean, you try, you know, yeah, you're in a competitive environment in that boat. There's you and the other guy. And you try to, depending on who you're fishing with. Like, if I'm fishing with Todd Oishi in my boat, yeah. I'm going to try and hide as much as I can. Because I know <laughs> if I'm on to something and he figures it out, he's going to spank me. Right? <laughs> Yeah, we've had Todd on. He's uh, like yourself. He's an amazing source of information. Yeah, but if it was someone else who might be struggling, who's not really well known even in, within the competitive world, I'll probably give him a bank of my flies. Right. I'll probably help him out as much as like I'll tell him exactly what I'm doing because I want to see him catch fish. I want to see him have fun. I want him to see him grow in competition and become better at it, so that he can share that with his friends. 
Do you play that game with when you take your flies off, you put them on a certain spot, and you kind of you can kind of see what you've gone through? Yeah, yeah. So I have on the side, my gun on my boat. I have uh, foam, right? And it's really foam that comes out of a Home Depot that you use for putting around your plumbing, indoor plumbing. It's, yeah, gotcha. Right. So I have my gunnels, the one side of my boat on my port side. And then I place my flies in there as I'm using or changing them out. And, you know, you know, these three go together as a team. These three go together as a team type of thing, right? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I had somebody on the show that they were saying that when they go out, they whatever, whatever they go out on the lake with is not what they're going to use, but it's kind of like a dummy pattern. Just say, oh, look at this. I'm using this, but really, oh, yeah. <laughs> really we're not. Yeah. In competition? Oh, yeah, I do that. I do that as well. You know, like, yeah, no, I don't think any good competitor goes out there with a preconceived idea that, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck on using these flies all day. Right. You know, things are going to change. You know, like I, you know, when you set up for competition at a lake, you might have a dozen patterns for that lake, for that time, for that time frame. Yeah. Next lake you go to, some of them might be similar, but there are probably some variations. You know, so you sort of set up teams of flies that you know through pre-fishing have been working. But hey, you know, like nationals in Manitoba. You know, we all did that, and then a cold front came in, completely changed, put everyone back on home home plate, not knowing what's going to be thrown at them next. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's when it gets interesting in my mind. Yeah. So now you got to dig in deep. You know, now you got to dig in. What do I do for cold front fishing? It's not cold weather fishing. It's cold front. What's the behavior of the fish? So the barometer's dropping, and the fish are probably yeah. not too entertained yeah but they're still feeding yeah fair still gotta eat maybe, maybe not as actively and they're probably going to slow down a bit you know so deep water fish will, will sink down and balance out uh with the barometric pressure and find a a balance point and um will continue feeding deep water how deep that is depends on how severe the barometric pressure drop is but those that are in the shallow shoal oriented they're going to drop down the bottom and look for cover Mm -hmm. they may not be deep they could maybe only be four or five feet deep but you better slow down your presentation like right to a crawl to a point where it's almost at a standstill. As an example, I was fishing with Jim Ardell who was the president of Team Canada at, at the Nationals there uh, it was the last day. He was in a gold or silver place finish. And him and I got partnered up for the last session. And I was three or four fish up on Jim. And I made him turn around and look at me. And he asked, what are you using? I said, something special. <laughs> and he said, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing nothing. He says, come on, you're doing something. You got like three or four fish already. I said, no, I'm doing nothing. I'm casting it out, pulling it tight, and then leaving it. And when the line goes tight, then I set the hook. If it doesn't go tight, I pick it up and make another cast. So they're hitting it on the drop. They're hitting it, sitting on the bottom. Oh, okay. 
doing absolutely nothing. Every once in a while, huh. I do a little twitch just to kick up a little dust. And then shortly within, you know, five to 10 seconds afterwards, I'd go to pull tight. I could feel weight on the fly line. The fly line would be going tight. I'm like, okay, am I stuck in the bottom or is that a fish? So I just would hold it. Next thing I know, the line starts taking off and it's up the hook. That's kind of cool. That was like slow, slow, slow fishing. Right? Yeah, those days, those days make me scratch my head. You know, you see something like, what is going on here? Yeah, and that's an old walleye fishing trick, right? Hmm. And cold front walleye fishing trick with jigs. Get them stuck in the bottom, leave them there. You know what keeps coming up, Gary, is this this cumulative experience on different genres, right? There's yeah. another example. Hey, I want to ask you this because you've been doing this a long time. And as far as like, I, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, but I follow a lot of tires on social media and I'm blown away at the quality, the level of fly tying over the past three, four years. It's like, there's some amazing tires out there that nobody's ever heard of. And I see it every day. Well, and that's thanks to the internet, you know, Instagram and Facebook, right? I mean, it's kind of made our world a lot smaller. Um, yeah. And and I think slowly over time, you know, those that don't or are not really good tires or, um, you know, have sort of just sort of weeded themselves out. Um, guys have given up. And, you know, I, I think back ten years ago, a lot of the guys were doing stuff that you don't see them anymore. Is that right? Interesting. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I find fascinating too is good tires don't always make good fly fishermen, and vice versa. I know some amazing fly fish people that don't tie at all. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just weird to me. Yeah, there's. Uh, it's an art form, right? Fly tying for some people is an absolute art form. Yeah. You let the dog out or in? Ah, uh, either. <laughs> yeah. I'm walking around facing the So um, it, it's something I always like to ask is kind of like, where do you think we're at as a group these days? I mean, you've seen you've seen the river runs through it kind of days where everything was peaking and then it kind of dwindled off and now it seems to be cranked up again. A lot of people coming to the water. As a group, like when you look at kind of fly fishing fly time where, where are we at I, I i think let's call it a culture instead of a group because we have different cultures around the world there's a uk culture which is strong in lake fishing there's the eastern european culture that's strong in river fishing um the north american culture and the tie, tying culture and the fishing culture is very different from any of those other ones I've mentioned. They all sort of take their own paths and um, they all explode at their own different times. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like one culture will just take off and all of a sudden you'll have a British invasion in North America, you know. Much like music, you know, we did back in the '60s and '70s with the Beatles and you know and all that group, and yeah, and it, it's no different. Um, currently, the current explosion or the recent explosion in the last ten years is definitely bringing the British and the Eastern Europeans, and I think South Africa is going to really come on now, and the Australians. Um, 
but there was a definite division after World War II where we sort of made our own identity because pre-World pre-World War II, well, let's say up until the 1960s, everything was pretty much British oriented. Yeah, had a lot of influence, let's say, and then authors like you know Lefty Cray and Charles Brooks, a lot of World War II vets at the time started authoring, they developed a North American culture, different flies, different techniques, and, and rightly so, because we had different water than, um, you know, when it, definitely when it came to creeks and rivers and streams, I mean, we have a lot more freestone streams here than, you know, the UK does. Not Maybe not so much as Eastern Europe, like in the Balkans, um, uh, but they're all different, you know. Um, yeah, I just, I just find it fascinating how it has changed, and you seem to know a lot about the history of it, and that makes a lot of sense. Like most most of the books in my library that I were from the UK, right? And then yeah. the, the Czechs came on, the, the Spanish, um, uh, Slovenia, Slovakia, like some of those uh, old world yeah. Euro- European countries have been doing it a, a lot longer than we have. Oh, hundreds of years longer than we have, you know. And so they they all developed their own distinct cultures you know how much of that it's adaptable into other parts of the world well, you know actually a lot of it is you know and, and we go back to my comment you know i was always told british flies don't work in north america and, and my response to him was well they don't work if you don't know how to fish <laughs> how'd that go <laughs> um if he it, actually it made him scratch his head and he said you might have something to it I love it. What about the retail end of it? Because this is somewhere that um, I I worked in fly shops years ago, and every town had a fly shop. Now, almost no towns have fly shops, but the e-business, the e-trade, the online, you know, like like yourself with Fly Life Canada, you must have seen a big change in the retail space. Well, I have, you know, I was retailing at one time when I lost my job in the oil patch back in 84. Um, National energy policy came out. So I ended up working in 83, 84. I ended up working at the professional and managing the fly tying department in the Southside store, which was brand new. And yeah, at that time we had the Fishnall, Northside, Fishnall, Southside, and then Reg Denny's little fly shop, which was unique. Uh, little fly shop and it was exclusively fly fishing where you know the fishing hole was more of a, a bag of tackle and bait and flies um, it wasn't really dedicated fully dedicated to flies but yeah the industry has really changed um, in some ways good in some ways not so good um, I think more fewer people have more control now yeah, Which, that's that's fair. It can be, and so I found in every industry I've ever worked in, the purchaser doesn't always know what he's purchasing, and you know, and if he's not up to speed on the latest, greatest, the newest technology, you may not get that stuff you need for five or ten or fifteen years, or until there's enough of a demand put on the individual as he's interested in listening to bring it in for you. Yeah, so I, yeah. So I think that drives e-stores quite a bit because the world is your oyster. I mean, I can order it from any e-store out of Europe or yeah. the US or whatever continent. It doesn't matter. I can, I, if I can't get 
by trying to support my local fly shop, I'm going to get it anyways. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the way I am. I always try to, if I can get it locally, great. But if I can't, that's what I, you know, I'll go online. Yeah. I do miss, I miss the brick and mortar. I, I'm, I got to, I like having my hands on things. I'm a look, see, touch. I got to see what's going on. I like, I love going in that fly shop. I, re, I remember the, the whole reason I live in a small town and Walmart came to town and, and uh, basically all of a sudden we could buy, let's say, lures whole uh, retail at Walmart cheaper than I could get them from our wholesaler. And that was when I knew the we knew the writing was on the wall because it's like, you know what, why why would I I might as well go and buy stuff from Walmart and put it on my damn walls. You know what I mean? It, it didn't make any sense. And I just I felt like that was the end of an era. <laughs> Kind of was and is, but it's also a different opportunity. Um, depends on how you want to look at it, I guess, depending on what your perspective is and where you're at in life at the time. Well, like some of my favorite fly shops right now are places like Walmart and Michaels and, you know, places like that because we're in the age of synthetics again, even though it's a, you know, fur and feather craft. We are. We have a resurgence of synthetics, and pretty much all the synthetics within the fly tying industry come out of the textile or furniture making industry. So, as an example, one of the greatest, most popular products out there right now—it's really a thing called dirty bug yarn. Right? Well, if you go into Estee, you can look under Shetland um, products and look up drift yarn it's exactly the same thing hmm. and that comes out of the sewing industry right? so there's very little stuff within the synthetic world of fly time that is made specifically for fly time it's not a big enough industry worldwide for textile or for manufacturers chenille say someone like a chenille manufacturer or a wool manufacturer to make products specifically for a fly time trade they'd go they'd go broke well i, th I think about that all the time like I, if i get a big package of uh, say buzzer wrap it's like you know unless i'm doing this commercial that's gonna last the rest of my life so that yeah. there's not a lot of resale in that right exactly yeah hmm. yeah it's it's an odd it's an odd business um i'm glad i only just kind of dabble in it um yeah. now one time i sort of had an aspiration to you know to be a significant fly shop on the prairies but now i don't um i think i have better places to spend my time and money yeah. Well, I love what you're doing and, and what you've done for so many years. I mean, helping, you know, kind of bring fly fishers up in their education, tires at the bench, um, you know, now through your store, Fly Life Canada. And, and just, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, man, tonight. I, there's a million things we can, you know, rabbit holes we can jump down and things we can talk about. But I'm I'm very uh, appreciative of your time and uh, grateful you took, took, took some time out of your busy schedule to chat with us well you're more than welcome it was definitely a pleasure for me as well gary if somebody wants to check out your online shop and pick up some things from fly life canada where's the best place to find you uh www.flylifecanada.ca 
And you're also on Stillwater's Global a lot uh, between yourself yeah. and, and Rick. I see putting a lot of uh, patterns up that you're fishing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a mod on that page as well. Yeah. And you got a YouTube channel, I assume, as well? It's not a good one. Like, I'm not good at making videos, and that's why I kind of let Rick do that. He he, he sort of likes yeah. that end of it, you know, the fly tying, making video end of it. Um, I, I, I'm I not good at it, and I, yeah. I, it's not that I don't enjoy it. I just... <laughs> I get it. I, I do. We've been chatting today with Gary Hankey, former team captain of uh, Canada's uh, World Fly Fishing Champion team, uh, went to Bosnia in 2015, been at this for well over 50 years. Very accomplished fly tire, master fly tire, former guide, and still teaches it, has Fly Life Canada. Thanks, folks, for joining us this time around. We'll catch you next time. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.